Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is February 8th, 2024, and I'm joined today by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, and as an added bonus, by IPI research fellow Bartlett Clellan. And today we're going to be talking about can states deny Donald Trump ballot access? So the reason we're talking about this today is that today was the Supreme Court oral arguments Mm -hmm. on this topic. And so you had, and uh, I listened to all of the oral arguments. I think, Dr. Matthews, you you listened to some. I think, Bartlett, you you listened to some. some. And so the... This is this issue. There's four or five states who have declared Donald Trump ineligible for, for ballot access. And the first was Colorado. And so it was Colorado's case that made its way to the Supreme Court. And so you had, you had an attorney arguing for the Trump campaign, and you had two different attorneys arguing for Colorado. You had one representing the Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. And then you had another attorney for Colorado that I think was solicitor general. Solicitor general. So you had this, which is essentially executive branch, right? So you had like the solicitor general, and then you had somebody arguing for the secretary of state, right? And I, th- I think, at least from what I heard from the justices and the comments I've heard afterwards, is the the justices were are skeptical of the argument yeah. that the states can do that. Yeah. Um, so it it looks like there's a fair, a pretty pretty good chance that they will come down and rule against Colorado. Well, bef- but having said that. Yeah, having said that. Yeah, before we get there, let's just talk about what the issues are because assuming that our listeners are somewhere on the nerd spectrum <laughs> where we are, right? These are really interesting questions and they're they're somewhat novel, right? right? Yeah. They're, they're they're somewhat novel. I mean, it's a, it's fascinating when the Supreme Court is having to deal with issues that a Supreme Court has never had to deal with before. Right. Right. And, and so these are somewhat novel. So, and so, a few of them, some of them they've had, like for, for the, the, one of the first questions is, what is an insurrection? Right, exactly. And, that, and they have had to deal with that. Yeah. And then who do you decide, who decides whether or not somebody participated in an insurrection? Exactly. And, and, and to what extent? I mean, if, if, not, if, if a person said, I support an insurrection, I'm a big supporter of it, but I never do anything mm-hmm. to actually go out and am I guilty of yeah. uh, being part yeah. of an insurrection or not? So, so for, for like full disclosure purposes, um, I think neither, neither myself nor Dr. Matthews nor Bartlett are big Donald Trump fans. But that's kind of irrelevant, right? Because what we want to actually talk about are the legal arguments, right? Mm-hmm. What 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 is the right answer? Not not what is the answer favored by one party or favored by another party. You know, we're not so much interested in supporting the Trump campaign or supporting the state of Colorado. We're interested. In what's the actual right answer? What 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 is the what is the right from from the Constitution, from law, from statute? What is the correct answer? So Colorado's argument essentially is, first of all, the Constitution gives states wide latitude to determine how their electors are chosen. And this is true. This is Mm -hmm. true, right? Right. I think a lot of our listeners probably don't realize that there is no requirement that states have presidential elections, much less primaries. There's no requirement that states have primaries. 
there's not even a requirement that states have general elections, right? The only requirement is that the state sends electors to Washington on a specific day to cast their votes. And they and some of them do it differently. Some will give a, a winner of the state all the electors. Right. Some will split those electors up upon, among various segments of the state mm-hmm. that uh, uh, that won. Uh, so and so you could have one uh, some states with divided winners, whereas one candidate wins some area, another candidate yeah. wins in the other areas. And at least worth a footnote here: primary elections are the party. Yeah, they are not even a state. It's not a government, government function. election right. function at all. Governments might administer those right. through some agreements or understandings, mm-hmm. but those are not government elections yeah. for anything. Exactly. It's important to remind people that there were no political parties in the earliest years of American history after the Constitution was ratified. There were no political parties. And, and they there, didn't anticipate political that's parties. That's exactly right. right. In that's fact, exactly there was right. a strong thread that they didn't want political well, parties. <laughs> this is, see, I love this point, Bartlett, because essentially when, when in the Federalist Papers, when it talks about the danger of factions, yes. I think it's really easy to see that in modern terms as political parties. Uh, yes. That Stunning political way. parties function <laughs> as, as a faction Right, which the founders were terrified of. Right, <laughs> and and obviously for good reason. Right, and you know, so <laughs> states do not have to have a general election to determine how the electors are appointed. The electors could be appointed by the state legislature. They could be appointed by the executive, by the governor. I mean, the Constitution doesn't dictate any of this. All the Constitution says is that the state must send. The Constitution determines how many electors a state has. Right, how they're apportioned. And then the Constitution says, and you must send your electors to D.C. And just as a side note, one of my sort of um, one of my sort of pet peeves has always been this idea of the unfaithful elector, mm-hmm. because in our constitutional system, the idea is that the state appoints electors of good conscience and goodwill, and it entrusts them to make wise decisions. Right? It doesn't saddle them with. And you must vote the following way, right? And so today we have this idea somehow that however the voters in a particular state vote, somehow the electors have a legal obligation to cast their electoral vote with the electoral college in that way. And if someone dares to part, they're an unfaithful elector. And none of that is constitutional. I think in some states it is a, it is a requirement that you do that you yes. vote for that. But yeah. having said that, Our listeners may remember that in December of 2020, Martin Sheen, if I remember right, went on television encouraging electors to not vote for Donald Trump. Those of you who are are set to go Trump, we encourage you not to do that. Yeah, I think you're right that there are some states who have laws that basically the, the intent of the law is to oblige the electors to follow the result of the state vote. Mm -hmm. Um. But that's not in the Constitution. Right. That's a subsequent develop. It's subsequent to the Constitution. It doesn't make it, make it wrong, and it doesn't make it unconstitutional. It just means it's subsequent to the Constitution. So anyway, Colorado's argument is essentially that the Constitution gives the state wide berth for determining how their electors are chosen. And so Colorado's authority to say, we find that this person is unqualified for electors. Mm-hmm. If he's unqualified for electors, then he's unqualified to be on the ballot. 
And there was there was actually sort of a, a big discussion during oral argument about this idea of does it disqualify someone from holding the office or does it disqualify someone mm-hmm. from running from the office, right? Which seems to me to be like a distinction without a difference because why would you allow someone to run for an office when you know they will not be qualified to hold the office? Like, why would you allow a 21-year-old to run for president when you know they're not qualified to hold the office, right? So if you already know ahead of time someone's not qualified to hold the office, it seems to me that it makes sense to block them from running for the office. Anyway, this is Colorado's argument, essentially, right? The contrary argument, and I think, as you said, Dr. Matthews, I think this is the argument that's going to hold is A, the states, when it comes to federal office, the states do not have the right to add additional conditions that are not stipulated in the Constitution. Right. Right? So the states cannot say, and you cannot have X, right? And you cannot have been divorced, right? Or, and you cannot be black, you know? Or, and you cannot have been convicted of a crime. You know, the states don't have a right, when it, again, when it comes to federal elections, they don't have the right to add conditions that are not in the Constitution. And in the minds of some of the justices' questions, this is what Colorado was trying to do. So the idea is, yes, the states have broad purview for how their electors are chosen, but they don't have unlimited purview. They don't have an un, 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 unlimited ability and it reminds me of a conversation, actually, that Bartlett and I had in the office earlier today, right, which is that um, the Constitution gives you certain purview, but it doesn't give you the purview to violate federal law, you know, right. Right. <laughs> you know, and, you know, if, if, if federal law says that these are the conditions for holding the office of the presidency or whatever, the states don't get to add new conditions to that. Um, so that was one argument. And then the second argument is this issue of d- the definition of insurrection. Mm-hmm. And... It, it reminds me a little bit of this border issue in Texas where Governor Abbott is arguing that the state has the right to defend itself against invasion. And the question is, is, is immigrants crossing the border an invasion? Mm-hmm. And we had, a, um, we had an event uh, a week or so ago with Professor Richard Epstein, and we asked him this specific question. And he said, I think that Essentially, Texas has the right to jump in and fill when a vacuum has been created by federal inaction. He said, essentially, Texas is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. But he said the invasion argument will not hold up. That will not withstand constitutional scrutiny because invasion implies a military invasion with the attempt to overthrow a government. And that's not what's going on at the border. So the same thing strikes me here, that if, if Colorado hinges its argument on this issue of an insurrection. There has been no finding that there has been an insurrection. Right. And, and even once, even if you had a finding that we, even if you have a definition of insurrection, now we know what an insurrection is because we don't know. I mean, Mm. people have different opinions about that. Right. Then did this particular person engage in insurrection? Yeah. And that's, that's where in, in my mind has always been the biggest problem to this argument is nobody's convicted Donald Trump of engaging in an insurrection. In fact, none of the people who went on attack the Capitol that day have been charged with insurrection, They've been yeah. charged with all kinds of things, but you, not insurrection. Exactly. I think you make a really important point, but I want to sort of underscore it. You said convicted. He hasn't even been charged with it. Right. 
And not only that, but literally people who fought with Capitol Police and smashed windows and broke down doors have not been charged with insurrection. Right. Right. So um, you don't have to you don't have to say, hey, I think the January 6th episode was really great. You don't have to be a defender of the January 6th episode to say that it probably doesn't rise to the threshold of insurrection. Uh, and, and so this this comes to this issue of is the is that clause in the Fourteenth Amendment self self what what was the term uh, self uh, act, actuating actuating right and th- if you listen to the oral arguments, it's very clear that the justices even some of the even some of the left leaning justices are highly skeptical of this idea that you know y- you have to have been found guilty of insurrection for that to kick in. And, and Donald Trump has not been found guilty of it. He hasn't even been charged with it. In fact, people who did far worse than he did have not been charged with it. Right. So you could argue that Trump created an environment that facilitated a riot. But that seems to fall well short of the idea of insurrection. And one of the, one of the real problems with this, and I think the justices will at least consider this in the back of their minds, is where would you go from here? If we let Colorado stand... Does any state get to come up and say, "I w- we will define what an insurrection is"? Because they would, they you would ex- conceive states defining insurrection down. Yeah, that is, you you change the election laws. This state over here changed election laws, and we don't like that. So we think that's engaging in an insurrection because yeah. you changed the election laws. Yeah, you could see you could see states start arguing that anything becomes an insurrection if we want to leave somebody off the off the ballot because we don't like that person. And if, if they applied it to uh, Donald Trump this time, next time around, you could expect the red states applying it to the Democratic presidential candidate. If there's anything they could hook onto to say that was an insurrection. Right. And I think broader, the principle at stake really isn't even about the insurrection. The principle at stake is when can states deny someone being on the ballot. And to mm-hmm. your point, almost anything they would do would be adding conditions. Mm-hmm. So if you say, oh, well, you, we can deny you because you were accused of or even found guilty of insurrection, could you pick something else that people could be guilty of uh, and say, well, if you've done this or appear to have done this, then I can keep you off the ballot. Yeah. And I think that is limited only by one's imagination. Um, yeah, and, and it's a good reason to have that protection in place. Yeah, for example, yeah. you could have a, a, you could have been a college student and wrote, written a paper saying, "Let me here's the five points I think why communism is a great right. <laughs> great uh, way to run a, uh, an economy in a country." And that might have been thirty years earlier, and you may have completely renounced that. But it could come up and said, "Wait a minute, you know, we see that you supported communism at one time, and we've seen this type of thing in our history, uh, and therefore we're going to paint you." Uh, as a communist, and we can uh, so, and that was my point about once you set this precedent, you would find more states looking for things and expanding the the term of uh, what an insurrection is to try to um, uh, to try to keep various people yeah. out of the, out of it. Yeah. Now, I am I am not a lawyer, Doctor Matthews. You're not a lawyer. Uh, Bartlett is actually a lawyer. Um, so, you know, we always have to be sort of careful when we start getting into these issues of, you know, constitutional interpretation and things. But I have to confess that when this issue first came up, my bias was along the lines of, 
the Constitution gives states broad purview about how their electors are chosen. So, you know, my initial take on this was, you know, those of you who think this is absurd and it's a slam dunk, slow down a little bit because the Constitution actually does give states a lot of purview here. But I, I over time, and especially today, listening to the oral arguments was a real clincher, that it, it totally makes sense to me that states cannot add, again, for federal office. Now, you know, within the state of Colorado, Colorado could add all kinds of conditions. Colorado could require any statewide elected official to be married and have three kids. You know, um, it would probably be challenged, but I mean, you know, it, it, but, but, but it could prevent people who have been convicted of a crime. Yeah, it could exactly. Be, it could prevent people from being convicted of certain crimes, mm-hmm. theoretically, right? Uh, especially if it was, you know, uh, uh, heavier felony kind of crimes. Yeah, which they do right now with term to vote. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes, absolutely, all that for the state exactly. elections, and the parties could do that in the party election. Right. Exactly. And so one of the, I don't remember which justice asked this question, but like the Constitution says that you have to be 35 to hold the office of the president, right? right? So a state can't say, well, actually, to be on the ballot in our state for president, you have to be 40. They can't add a condition like that. Yeah. And so short of some sort of a conviction for insurrection, right, uh, what Colorado is attempting to do and what Maine and some other states are attempting to do is add additional conditions for ballot access. Right. Now. What I find interesting, and no one talked about this today, so I just mentioned it just as a sideline, I'm interested in the this phenomenon we have of how our political parties have become very, very weakened over time, and the difference between state functions and political party functions. And I would argue that the Colorado Republican Party could keep someone off the ballot for almost any reason. Off of the party ballot. The party ballot. Sure. The primary ballot. See? And so it wasn't the Colorado Republican Party that acted here. It was the state that acted, right? You it, mean the Colorado Democratic Party? Well, it was the Colorado Secretary of State. Right. But it, it was the Democrats would have wanted to keep Trump off, not the, Repu- not the Republican Party. No, no. But, but my point, this is purely theoretical. Right. But it's something that's of interest to me. What the Supreme Court dealt with today was literally the official state government saying Trump can't be on the ballot. Mm -hmm. But what if you had a political party in a state that said, we think Trump was guilty of an insurrection. Um, We are not going to allow him on the ballot, right? There's not a ton of law, either federal or state, that governs which candidates a party allows on their ballot. I mean, uh, for the most part, parties could literally have a candidate selection committee that interviewed anybody who wanted to be on the ballot. And the party could keep you off the ballot. It's called a caucus. Yeah, no, seriously. I mean, the party could say, you don't get to be on the ballot just because you pay the registration fee. Well, in fact, I think that actually does happen in some states at, at times, in, at various times that they have looked at somebody and said, you're not really, you don't really belong in this. And so right. we're going to try to keep you off the ballot. And to what extent they've been successful in doing that. But I think parties oftentimes do try to keep some people off their well, ballot. Not, not enough for my taste. And, I, and I'll go even further. <laughs> Because I read today, and this has been the case for a little while, is that Democrats are increasingly concerned that a third party candidate on a ballot is going to end up costing Joe Biden the election. Mm. And so they're going into work to try to keep these various third party candidates 
off the uh, ballots when we come to the election. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, you could have the parties working together. You could have a party in a state saying not with their own party necessarily, but I don't want this third party on the ballot and I'm going to put up uh, legal challenges and other things, do everything I can to keep them off because we think if that third party comes in, they'll t- they'll draw votes from Joe Biden and that could cost right. Joe Biden the election. And I think that's a fair assessment. Well, and that's also part of what was interesting about the issue before the court today is that once again, going back to this idea that the states have wide purview about issues like ballot access. I mean, that that is state by state. Mm-hmm. Every state has its own rules. Some states you have to get a certain number of signatures on a petition. Yes. You know, to, some are very to be on simple. The just pay a, little, a small some fine. Some you just, you and just a pay a hundred fifty dollar, you know, registration and fee, and you're on the ballot. Your own. I think it is a fine. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> <it's> a, <laughs> tax maybe. Yeah. Right, right, right. That's a poll tax. Yeah. So, so there there are some really interesting novel issues at stake here. But as as I think you said earlier, Doctor Matthews, if you were listening to the the questions, even some of the left leaning justices seemed highly skeptical. Mm-hmm. Of, of this idea. And so that leads me to think that the final decision on this is going to at least be seven to two, maybe eight to one or nine to zero. Uh, just, just, and again, I know it's dangerous to try to guess what a final court rendering is going to be based on oral argument, but, but all of the questions seemed highly skeptical of this idea that the states can, can act like this to keep someone off of the ballot. Um, but I, I, you know, I just, I, uh, I, I still can't help, but sort of get rid of this question about, you know, what would happen if a state party decided to keep someone off the ballot? And I think that, that, that is an utterly different question because that, because the primaries are run by the political parties. They're not run by the state governments. They're run by the political parties. Right. It's a private organization. Exactly. So you have protections even in a private organization around discrimination and mm-hmm. all that in certain circumstances. So yeah. you'd have to avoid that. Yeah. But avoiding all of those things, mm-hmm. then, yeah, the party can figure out how it puts people on the ballot. And it's say, just, I mean, I joked about caucuses earlier, but some places caucus. Right. Some places uh, do a, a more uh, uh, traditional, uh, mm-hmm. whatever, a ba- a regular go to the booth and vote. Yeah. Uh, situation. Yeah. Uh, Nevada does, as we're all learning, uh, a little bit of both. Um, and <laughs> they depending, do, they do both. Depending right? yeah. which one you sign up for, you might win, right, you might not. Right, I mean, right. you, you get elector or you get uh, delegates one way, you don't maybe the other way. Like, yeah, that that has nothing to do with government telling those, yeah. the parties deciding how they want to do it. So this is this is maybe some value that we can deliver to our listeners uh, because I find when I when I talk to groups, this is an area that people just are clueless about. And I don't mean that in an ugly way, right? Because if you're, you know, 50 years old or younger, your entire life, states have held primaries. And then there have been a couple of two or three weird states that held caucuses instead of primaries, but that's all you've known, right? And I think people are always surprised to find out that there is no legal mandate for states to hold primaries. In In fact, fact, primaries are a relatively recent innovation. They used to do this at the party convention right. behind closed doors, right? And they would take the vote among party members at the convention. This is the old like smoke filled smoke rooms, rooms thing, and sometimes right? somebody you had had no <laughs> anticipation would end up being the candidate. Ends up being the candidate if they if they go through dozens and dozens right. of votes. So essentially, what the primary is is a democratization of the process of choosing a nominee, mm-hmm. right? 
And it used to be done by insiders who would say, okay, so we got these four options. It's obvious to all of us that this is the most electable person. So we're going to, that's going to be our nominee, right? And what we have essentially done is we've democratized the function. We've turned it over to the grassroots through primaries. And at least in recent Republican history, um, a lot of these results have been very bad. Mm-hmm. Where the, the the person who won the primary through a grassroots process was the least electable person, right? You know, I mean, so you look at like in Georgia, like um, um, Herschel Walker, right? Deeply flawed candidate, but he won the primary. Mm-hmm. That's who the grassroots chose. But I think you know most sort of sophisticated political insiders looking at that would say, "Boy, he's got a lot of problems in the general." And turned out that, that's how it turned out. Turned out that a red-leaning state ended up electing a Democrat senator, in part at least because of the electability problems of the nominee. So there are some of us, and I'm one of them, who would argue that we should do away with primaries and go back to the to the days of the smoke-filled rooms. That's that's a minority position. That's an unpopular position. But it seems to me that the Republican Party, at least, has adapted a progressive era philosophy of choosing candidates, that the more the grassroots are involved, the more democratic it is, the better it is. And I think recent results at least suggest that that's not the case. They, I, I can't resist pointing this out. Uh, they say that uh, perhaps generally, but then you have a case like New Hampshire, uh, which has open primary. Mm. Uh, another way you understand that primaries are not done by the government, because mm. in some states you have to declare, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. Right. You get the appropriate ballot for either you're independent, maybe you don't even get to vote. Yeah. Uh, that you can't... That, that, you can't uh, so easily dismiss your right to vote um, in a government right. election. So right. this is for the party again. But Nikki Haley was roundly criticized by any number of critics from the conservative side for, well, the only reason she even stood a chance of being uh, of winning or of even showing at the percentage she did is because all of these previous Democrats are independents. Oh, my goodness. The independents yeah. voted for Nikki Haley. And that shows that she's not really... Republican as a, and so I think it's funny yeah, in these cases yeah, yeah, yeah. where they talk about the electability and yet the person who is running widely for right. the electability, right. she's, is she's then proven that she can draw is chastised right. for doing that exact yeah. thing. She's proven that she can draw votes from non-Republicans. The, the, that's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Which you have to do to win the election. That's exactly a- right. That's a- absolutely. That's exactly right. We were talking sort of before the podcast, we were talking in the office about a local congressional race that's going on right now where there are literally like 11 candidates in the race, right? So how do you end up with 11 candidates in the race? Well, you end up with 11 candidates in the race because it's basically anybody that wants to run can run. All you got to do is pay the $150 registration fee, right? That's all you got to do, right? There is nothing in the law or the Constitution that would prevent a a local county Republican Party or Democrat, I shouldn't say Republican, any party, right, from simply saying, you know what, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to have a candidate selection committee and everybody has to come before us for an interview. And the 11 or 15 people on the candidate selection committee will decide who's running for this race. That's entirely legal. That doesn't violate any law, any statute, doesn't violate the Constitution. There's no obligation for anybody who wants to run on a particular party's platform that they're allowed to do it. 
But we've sort of bought into this sort of progressive idea that we get the very best results the more the grassroots are running things. And I just I think there's there's a lot of civic education along these lines. You don't have to have primaries. You don't have to. You know, a political party is essentially a club yeah, in a way, I was right? Use that word earlier. Yeah, so just a club. Yeah. So you you the political party is under no obligation to allow all comers to fly the flag of the club, right? I mean, if you had somebody who was utterly out of step with the party platform, with the party positions and traditions, and they said, yeah, I want to run. You have no obligation as a party to allow them on the ballot. Yeah, although it turns out we often elect them for president. <laughs> okay, that's 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 where we should stop right there. That's a perfect opportunity to stop. So, um, just in summary, yeah, it's it was it, these are really it's really interesting. If you're sort of like a elections nerd or a constitution nerd, this is fascinating. But it really does seem like the answer is going to be favorable to Donald Trump. To remain on these ballots, uh, and uh, and that is probably the right the right answer because if if uh, if we want to if society wants a function where we have discretion over who runs for office, that discretion should take place at the party level, not at the state government level. Is that a good way to sort of sum sum the, up the discussion? I think so. Okay, very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We would invite you to check out our website at ipi.org, where you can sign up to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would appreciate a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform, because that helps other people discover our podcast. You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society, again, where you can find out about the Giving Society at IPI.org. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.